Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. instruction for life. God, it's guidance, Lord Jesus, for our lives. I pray, O Lord, open our minds of understanding God to understand your word. We will not fail to thank you and praise you for what you do and accomplish through your word. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. Amen. Church, say amen. You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. Jesus says, and of course he is Basing what he says upon what he has said in chapter number 15, he tells them that these things that he had not spoken, that he had spoken to them, he's spoken these things to them so that they would not be offended. He has just finished up, as you very well know, from our last couple of weeks in chapter 15, has just informed the disciples how they will be hated or even maybe more properly Uh, translated how they will be rejected by the world. And again, the world in this context isn't just only the ungodly and the unrighteous, but the world in this setting and passage of Scripture also encompasses all the religious people who didn't have a complete revelation of who Jesus Christ was. Because they also became haters, if you will, of those that were propagating and preaching Christ because they seen Christ then as an imposter because they didn't realize who he was. And so this is needed information then for all converts when uh, that he would share this concept that you'll be rejected, you'll be hated, and I'm telling you this so that you won't be offended, offended because whenever uh, we become a Christian and we understand the Scriptures, this is probably not talked about as much as it ought to be talked about. And we mentioned this uh, some time ago, Sister Sheila, in our Connect group, and that is this, that when you become a Christian, you have this understanding of Scripture that starts to happen you become a target for the world. You become a target for the adversary. We don't talk about that, I think, as much as we need to talk about that. But it's true. Too long, I think, the church has painted a skewed picture that becoming a Christian will just cure all of your ills and it'll solve all of your problems. How many still has some ills? How many sitting here still has some problems? All right, and so it is not some magical bullet gun and all of this type of thing. We still have both. But at least being a child of God and having his word, we, we have God's spirit to help aid us and to strengthen us to endure some of those ills and some of those problems and some of those difficulties. And I understand even this as a Christian that at times my relationship with God creates some problems for me. Uh, If that side of Christianity isn't discussed, if that side of Christianity isn't talked about, then you as a Christian can be very easily disillusioned and shaken when the problem comes 
The heartache knocks on your door. The answer doesn't come. You can almost feel a little shaken in your spirit and disillusion. And so Jesus is being very proactive here in the scripture in this respect because he doesn't want his disciples to be blindsided that now they have this red bullseye on them that the crosshairs are laid up on their life and they're doing what they feel like they should be doing concerning the Lord and they're serving Christ and they're trying to live a life of righteousness. And so he wanted his disciples to know what a life lived for the Lord looks like. You are public enemy number one. (laughs) You are public enemy number one. Amen. He didn't want them to be caught off guard. He didn't want them to be serving him and then all of a sudden this come along and then they would become depressed and overwhelmed and and throwing up their hands and pointing fingers and casting words against God and just saying forget it all. Huh? He didn't want something like this. He didn't want them to be offended. The word there is a little bit more particular. He didn't want them to stumble. He didn't want their faith to be shook. He didn't want them to go astray over still having problems and yet being a Christian. Listen, there's been, and it's happened throughout time, and I think, again, because we don't talk about it often enough, there have been people that's become Christians, been disillusioned because all hell broke loose in their life after the fact, and they just hung their harp on the willow and said, Thuy on this. Amen. Forget this. I had this before I came to the Lord. Amen? And so there, there was a certain, in the Bible, there was a certain scribe among a particular multitude in the Gospels that desired and wanted to follow the Lord and so much so that even told the Lord, Lord, wherever you go, that's where I want to go. It's kind of like the Ruth and Naomi you know, relationship. You know, wherever you go, that's where I want to go. And we commend the scribe, of course, for having this desire. We commend the scribe for wanting to go and do whatever the Lord would do. I, I believe, in essence, uh, partly that's really what we all want, you know, to go wherever the Lord goes, do what he wants us to do, kind of follow his lead. However, Jesus told him what to expect. It's like if you say you're going to follow, if you say you, you want to go wherever I go, let me tell you about some of the places I go. let me tell you about some of the things that I face not for the purpose mind you of discouraging him but just informing him so that when this happens you knew that I said there's a high possibility this was going to happen the Bible says this is his his reply to the man in Matthew 8 and verse number 20 Jesus saved this good old boy that's wanting to follow the Lord I'm going with you yeah me and you buds Christ we're doing this and Jesus says to him the foxes have hoes <laughs> and the birds of the air have nests but the son of man hath not where to lay his he said nature and the creatures and the animals have it better off than we're going to have it I don't but I'm not discouraging you really I just want you to be aware of some of the things that you may face. So Jesus told the disciples, he told them, he said, you're all going to be hated, you're all going to be rejected, uh, and I want you to know this so that you will not be offended. The Net Bible says it like this, so that you will not fall away. I want you to know this so that you won't fall away. And so for this purpose, for this purpose, Paul 
the Apostle Paul and his traveling command, companions would go back after they established churches and works in different cities and towns. They would go back to those cities and towns and they, where they started these churches. And many times they would set up uh, uh, some elders there. This is in your Bibles. The, the idea of elders in the church is biblical. They would set up elders there that, that could teach and, and carry on with the work. But also, they would also remove some misconceptions that those new believers may have about their new family newfound life in Christ so whenever they return you know they just had this great experience of repentance and baptized in Jesus name filled with the Holy Ghost you all maybe remember when that happened it's like whoo somebody lit a fire you know man let's go win the world and we can you know take Goliath on with our sling and stone just like David did and there is no den of lions that's going to have one even bite of flesh out of me because we're a child of God it's amazing that he doesn't, he doesn't do it right after the Holy Ghost experience, but he kind of comes back to him. Just gives it a little bit of time. And he tells them then about some of the things that they need to look at. Kind of get rid of any misconceptions they may have about their newfound faith. And this is what he says in Acts 14 and verse 22. When he returned, the Bible says, confirming the souls of the disciples. The word confirming meaning he's strengthening and establishing the souls of the disciples and exhorting, encouraging them to continue to remain, to abide in the faith and that we must through much tribulation, troubles, Hardships enter into the kingdom of God. Uh-huh. Going to strengthen you. Want to encourage you. Abide, remain, because not that we might or that it's a possibility or only on weekends. No. We must, through tribulation, trouble, hardship, heartache, Enter into the, he said, this is a part of the game plan. This is a part of the road. This is a part of the journey. You go through the water, you go through the fire. Don't stay in the water. Don't stay in the fire, but you go through the water. You go through the fire, and you enter into the kingdom of God. It's a part of the dynamic of being a child of God. Don't be shaken. Don't stumble. Don't fall away. When this happens, it's part of the trip. Mm -hmm. Amen. And so Saul, prior to becoming Paul, Saul, to understand this, whenever Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, some people's going to put you out of synagogue, some people's going to kill you, and as they're doing all these things, they're going to think they're doing God a service. I mean, they're going to, you know, if you ask them who their employer was, they'd say, I'm God, I'm God's, you know, God's my employer. I'm working for him. Paul, before his name, Saul, before his name was changed to Paul, before his conversion, was one of those that thought everything that he was doing was in service to the Lord. He thought he was doing it for the Lord. I mean, he was incarcerating people. As Saul, he was incarcerating people. He was persecuting Christians prior to his conversion. In his day, he was doing that. He was the one that stood there as the men with stones were stoning Stephen, the first martyr of the church. They're stoning Stephen, and Saul was standing there in Acts 8, 
consenting, the Bible says, to Saul's death. He thought he was doing a service unto the Lord. The Bible says that the stoners even laid their garments down at the feet of Saul. He was there. Didn't raise a hand to stop it. If anything, he's like, go ahead and take care of it, right? Amen. The Bible even says in Acts 8 and 3, concerning Saul, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering to every town and hailing, which is literally dragging men and women, committing them to prison. And so whenever Saul then later, we see him, the famous Acts 9 story, he's on the road to Damascus, the bright light shines, the voice from heaven comes, he's knocked down off of his beast. But on his way to Damascus, prior to going to there, he went to some of the chief officials, he got letters from them of authority from the chief priests so that Whenever he went to Damascus, anyone that was preaching the name of Jesus, propagating the name of Jesus, he could take them, bind them, take these men and women that was professing Jesus. He had permission from the chief priests, those of the higher-ups, to bring them back to Jerusalem, bound. And if you asked him, who are you working for? He would say, I'm doing a service unto the Lord. Amen. However... Saul didn't remain Saul. Saul had a moment of enlightenment. We'll talk about that in a moment. He had a deeper understanding of this Christ that people were preaching about. And he was converted. And so Saul knows both sides of this coin. He knows what it's like to be on one side, to feel like he's doing this to all of the Christians, and he's doing a service unto the Lord. But he also knows what it's like to be Paul, and familiar then, Sister Malin, with the tribulation side, the hardship side, the back side of his conversion too. Because no sooner, it's in your Bibles, no sooner was Paul converted that he went to preaching in the synagogues, even at Damascus, and he preached Jesus. What well, he used to persecute people for preaching. And he's preaching Jesus. And guess what happens? People take a counsel to want to kill him. Now the persecutor has become the persecuted. The one that's doing service for God, I'm going to do this and that for God, is now receiving the brunt, if you will, of everything that he would have formerly done to someone. Amen. And so Jesus struck the nail on the head. Amen. While others like Saul would do these types of things, he strikes the nail on the head in John 16.3 when he says, And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me, or they do not understand the Father or me. That was, that was Saul's problem before his conversion. He did what he did. He did these things unto these Christians because he didn't realize that Jesus was God. That's really the, the, the brunt of it. He did not realize that Jesus was God revealed or manifested in the flesh. He didn't learn this really until his encounter on the Damascus road. Saul, amen, he said, the Bible says, this man that he said at the feet of 
Gamaliel. He's been taught. He understands there's one God. Any good Jew from beginning of birth is going to hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They're going to hear that throughout their whole life. They have been taught that. He believed in one God. And he thought this Jesus character was being an imposter. He thought this Jesus character was in competition with God. Amen. He thought people was looking at another God or maybe uh, another additional God. And he wasn't accepting that. He knew what he had been taught. He knew there was only one God. And so to Saul, accepting the words of Jesus, amen, was to accept another God. To accept the works of Jesus was to believe in another God. But when he's on that road to Damascus and the light shines from heaven, he's knocked down off of his beast and and Saul begins to converse with this voice from heaven and he cries out and says, Who art thou, Lord? And that voice from heaven responds to him and the Lord Lord says, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Hold on, wait a minute. This is the voice from heaven. I have called you Lord. This I'm speaking to God. But this voice is returning back to me that I am Jesus. The light bulb went off in Saul who became Paul. And he understood in this moment that this Jesus that I have been attacking people for because they're preaching in his name and his works and all of his deeds. My God has come down in the form of a man as Christ Jesus and is walking among us it cleared amen now what do you see he's not now amen persecuting people he's not now taking them to prison why because as john says there's come an understanding people that do that type of stuff don't know the lord and doesn't know christ they do not understand these concepts they do not understand that he is one and the same Amen. Someone say amen. Amen. And so, that kind of cleared things up for, for Saul. Things changed from that moment forward because Saul understood God, Jesus to be God in the flesh. And his first message, no, this is how clear it was to him. This, his first message after conversion was that Christ, Christ was the Son of God. And that is tremendous. He understood that Jesus Christ was the son, or if you will, the flesh of God. Because Galatians 4.4 tells us concerning that child that was born, that which was born of a woman. And flesh begets flesh. And spirit begets spirit. And the awesome thing about Christ is he was begotten by a fleshly mother, but a heavenly father. And so a flesh begets flesh and spirit begets spirit found in the man Christ Jesus was both something that was earthly and something that was heavenly. Well, don't get me started on that. mm, mm. And so there was an enlightenment. There was an understanding that came. He no longer felt the need to reject Jesus. He felt no longer the need to reject them that followed him. He understood. But... He received his form of punishment now as being a Jesus believer. You read the portfolio of the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 11. He's talking about a night, and a, a night and a day spent in the deep. And he suffered the peril of his countrymen, the peril of this. And he says also among there, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. 
or he, five times he received 39 lashes. Now, no, I never knew this before until this past couple weeks. 39 lashes was a distinctive punishment given by synagogue authorities. You know what that means? People that was like Saul or Paul used to be. Religious Jewish people. That was their typical. He received that five times, 39 stripes, from somebody else thought that they were doing their act as a service unto the Lord when in reality they just didn't understand who Jesus was. So he went through rejection by those who did not understand who Jesus was, did not know or understand him at all. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 23, oh, thank you. You have my timer. I didn't have it up here. So it's kind of, you know, sometimes you need three timers because if they forget and I forget, then another one maybe I give to my wife. I don't know. But 1 John chapter number 2 and verse 23 says, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Don't need to get afraid about father-son language. When you speak about the Son, you're just talking about the flesh. When you speak of the Father, you're talking about the Spirit. And so he that denieth the flesh of the Son of God. This, the, the same hath not the spirit of that Son. But if you acknowledge the flesh, that he did come in the flesh, then you also have the spirit of God. Amen. The, the, the complete Jewish Bible says it like this. They will do these things because they have understood neither the Father nor me. People, and, and this is good probably for life, but my understanding in life, these few years I've been upon it is this people primarily criticize what they do not understand and that in a nutshell is really what Jesus is getting at here he said they're doing what they're doing because they're not understanding something and so the best defense towards something you don't understand is just criticize it as though it has no validity amen so if you do not know or understand that jesus is the image or the flesh of the invisible god or spirit then a lot of people will just reject him and they'll reject the people and they'll reject the biblical accounts not because they necessarily don't believe just because they don't understand mm-hmm why do you think then it is that oftentimes we see the disciples are different ones? For instance, the eunuch in Acts chapter number 8, whenever Philip is one out there, and he's reading in Isaiah about one who's going to go through humiliation and all this, and, and, and Philip asks him, he says, understand this, what thou readest? He says, no, if someone would explain to him. And the Bible says he started where he was at in his misunderstanding, and he preached Jesus to him. What's he doing? He's taking away the eunuch's ability to criticize because he's granting him understanding. We, that's, this is, that's why we do Wednesday night Bible study. We're removing somebody's critical card by providing understanding. Amen. Amen. And so, Jesus tells, he tells some of his disciples that there's going to be some things that's going to start to take place here soon. And he didn't tell them about these things in the very beginning, he said, because he was with them. And he was. 
and flesh and blood in his earthly ministry. He was with them. But now the game is changing, if you want to call it that. Sorry, I don't mean to. It's just a phrase. All right. But the game is changing. Now he is leaving. And they need to know about some things that are on the horizon. And so as he begins to divulge some of this stuff, the disciples' hearts are very saddened. They are sorrowful because of what he has shared with them. Probably predominantly because he told them, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go away. I'm going to be departing. Amen. In fact, they are so sad and so sorrowful that no one of the disciples even asked the Lord, well, where are you going? They are just saddened by the fact he's not going to be there. So, you know, it, you, he could have had a chip on his shoulder. No one even cares about where I'm headed. You're just sad that I'm not going to, you know, you're just sad that I'm not going to be here. You're sorrowful. And so because they're overpowered with this sorrow, they didn't even think about where he is going. They're, they're more concerned about how his absence is going to affect them than they were about where he was going. Amen. I mean, think with me for a moment. What would life without Christ look like for them? I mean, particularly among the 12 disciples that been rubbing shoulders with him, you know, for three and a half years in ministry. If he was at the river, if, he was at, if they were at the Sea of Galilee, all of them were. If, if he was on a mountain, they were there. If he were feeding the thousands, they were there. When he laid his head to sleep at night, although the birds have nests and the foxes have hoes, they were there, right? If it was a prayer meeting, it seemed like most of the time they were there and so this is a question to reason with they have spent their lives for the past three and a half years right alongside his and he has with without any reserve poured himself into them right i mean i mean people in their culture coveted a word from jesus people in their culture and era coveted a time that they could have interaction with jesus and the disciples had it he talked to them frequently frequent with I can't get that out. Frequently. We're going to create some new words and add them to the dictionary for this year of 2022. Everybody else does it. Why can't I? Amen. Language is so much so static. It does not stay the same. But nonetheless, and so they're doing all these things. People want, I mean, for instance, the lady with the issue of blood, what does she, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Blind Bartimaeus, when he heard that it was Jesus passing by. He cries out. It's one that interaction. He's desiring that. Zacchaeus, all our Sunday school teachers, climbed up in a sycamore tree, right? Just to see the Lord. And is no doubt deeply overwhelmed whenever he learns that Jesus is coming to his house. I'm like, I mean, I'm almost feeling like a disciple right now. And I'm going to be able to spend a meal in time with Jesus. So what in the world could it look like with life without Christ because the 12 have had these these perks and privileges of rubbing shoulders with him being around him if taken advantage of daily interaction and communication with Jesus what would they now do that he's leaving them and yet Jesus told them the benefit in verse 7 he says if I don't go away the comforter which John 14 told us was the spirit of truth which it told us was the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit will not come. And he had already told them in John 14 that the Comforter would abide with them forever. Well, we've just been talking about this whole vine branch stuff. 
we got to abide in him. He's got to abide in us. And we want to stay connected so that there's fruit and all this stuff. And you're telling me then, now, if you'll go, there's going to come something. Amen. A spirit of truth that will abide with us forever. He told them in John chapter number 14 that the comforter, that the spirit of truth dwelleth with you. He told them. He said, I dwell, I dwell with you. He said, but I shall be in you. He said, I dwell present tense with you, but I shall be future tense in you. Same God, same spirit, different relationship. Now listen. Oh God, help me. Sometimes, living in the day that we live in, we speculate about how wonderful it would have been. How wonderful it would have been if I lived in Jesus' day. Wouldn't that be awesome? Flesh and blood Jesus. Feeding thousands Jesus. Dead bodies being raised Jesus. There's something cool and a little bit scary about that. Right? I mean, could you imagine eating at the same table with Jesus? Could you envision Jesus praying for you? You want to talk about a prayer line? Me and Bishop be standing up here and there'd only be one line. It'd be Jesus. <laughs> However, we must not feel like those days of Jesus and living during the days of Jesus that we'd have been better off because Jesus walked among them in flesh and alongside them and with them in flesh. He was with them. But us and all those on this side of the cross don't just have the privilege of Him being with them, but have the privilege of Him being in them. Can I tell you this? On this side of Calvary, we have a greater nearness to Him than they did prior to Calvary. So please don't look with a longing eye and say, well, I wish I had been Peter or I wish I had been John. I wish I could have got on a boat, honey. When you go to the store, He's there. When you come to church, He's there. When trouble's all around you, He's there. When you're on the mountain, He's there. When you're in the valley, He's there because He is in same God, different relationship, but I'm glad I'm on this side of Calvary. Oh, yes. Mm. Amen. I'll take it. Mr. McLaurin says this. He said, speaking of the generation prior to Calvary. Those that maybe fall shortly thereafter. He said they had to pierce through the veil. That is to say, and this is scripture, that is to say his flesh before they reached the holies of holies of his spirit. You hearing what I'm saying? There was, there was a division between God and man, so to speak. There was a barrier called his flesh. They pierced that with a, 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 a spear. Thank you, dear. Fill in the blanks. They pierced that with a spear. That 
crown on his head. All of these things, they had to go through the veil of his flesh. But us, literally in the temple, the moment he died, the veil in the temple was rent from top to And when you think of veil, you think of a curtain. But let me tell you, the veil in the temple was feet thick. So when we say it was ripped, a good strong man couldn't take it and go. It was ripped from top and bottom. Why? Because the veil had been pierced. It was symbolism. There was a veil. You, you, you have all the, the, the brazen laver and you, 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 have the, you have the brazen altar and you have the, the candlesticks and you, you have the table of shoe bread and you have the golden altar. But then there's this veil. No one can go in there except the high priest. And typically he only once a year. But on crucifix day, when the veil's been torn, any boy, girl, man, woman, race, creed could freely go. That's a different relationship than what the Old Testament had. But I like this relationship. It gives me free access and I can boldly go before the throne of God and make my petition and... Amen. So before we, before we move tremendously forward here, I'm trying to keep pace here. I believe it's important to note that. Note how Jesus says this in verse 5. But now, he tells them, but now I go my way to him that sent me. Note, note how that's where. But now I go my way to him that sent me. The way that, that that's, that's worded here in our English Bibles, what that describes to me is this. Is that he's leaving by his own choice. But now I go my way to him that sent me. Let me state it differently. He's going away. His departing is within his control. Because on the stage of humanity... Judah shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane with those and their rods and staves. And he's slapping a wet one on the side of Jesus' cheek and saying, this is the one. And they're apprehending the Lord and incarcerating him and taking him away. On the surface, it looks like the trial that's before Pilate and before the crowd and the audience and everything that was being stated there and, and the crucify him crucify, it looks like they placed him at Calvary. Barabbas is chosen over Jesus for release. But no. Jesus goes. He goes his way to him that sent him. Pilate didn't do it. Judas didn't do it. The chief priests and the scribes didn't do it. Barabbas being chosen didn't do it. He went according to his father's will. No one could take. Listen, let me tell you, this is, this is absolute known. No one, and I do mean no one, no one could have taken Jesus if he had not decided to go. Even Pilate said at that one time, and I preached along these lines before, he said, don't you know I have power for you to be crucified? He says, correction, Pilate. 
Let's understand, you wouldn't even have the power to be saying what you're saying right now if it were not given to you from above. So, whenever he says that he lays down his life and he takes it up, that's his choice. That's his decision. John 16 and verse number 8, if we'll continue on just a little further here. And when he, speaking that's the Holy Ghost, is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judge. The complete Jewish Bible says it like this concerning verse number 8. He will show that the world is wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. The word that is translated in our Bibles, reprove. That's the word used in verse number 8. The word that is translated reprove in verse 8 is a word in their culture that was used in their court system, particularly in cross-examinations. And it can carry a twofold meaning, this word reprove. It could carry the meaning of either convict or it could also carry the meaning of convince. See, the Holy Ghost... The Holy Ghost comes to, if I use one shade of meaning of this word, to convict us of sin and to convince us of our need of a Savior. We will not believe upon Jesus. Hear me clearly. Audience in the great electronic world, hear me clearly. We will not believe on Jesus if we do not see ourselves as sinners in a hopeless case. We must believe Jesus. We must believe that he declares and that he reveals the great God of heaven to us. And in believing on him and in his name, which is the center key verse of John, the Bible says when we do this, we will, he will, we, this is all the way back even in John chapter 1, that he will give us power to become, Bishop, the sons of God. That we will, John chapter 1 tells us, that we will not be born of the flesh or the will of man, but we are born of God. And we'll understand then that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And whenever we come to the realization of that, when sin, whenever the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin and convinces of us of a need of a Savior, then we'll realize I can't depend on myself. I can't depend upon another. I can't depend upon this world. I got to depend upon Him. But again, we will not believe in Him if we do not see our own fallen condition. We won't. I'm good. What needs changed? I lead a good life. Cornelius did too. But he still needed the Holy Ghost. He offered prayers that even stacked into heaven. He was a devout man. Good. Alms to the poor. He still needed the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. And so when we come to this, what we understand is this. That unbelief. 
unbelief. And, and that's what it says there in verse number nine. He says, I'm, I'm going to reprove them of sin because they believe not on me. Unbelief is a hurdle that we've got to jump over, jump through something in order to enter into his rest, in order to enter into, if you will, his spirit. The first generation, for instance, the first generation of Israelites in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that they did not enter into the promised land that was notably known as the rest. They did not enter into the promised land primarily because of unbelief. Amen. The Lord told them, everywhere that your foot steps is yours. It's your possession. I'll give it to you. You can do this. He gave them the promise. You cross over, bam, bam. It's victory. It's, you know, throwing the confetti. It's going to happen. Amen. But somewhere after surveying the land, doubt and things entered their heart. And the Bible says this is a later rendition here in the Scripture of Hebrews 3. But it's looking back to the Old Testament. In Hebrews 3.19 it says, So we see that they could not enter. And speaking about that first generation. Because of unbelief. Unbelief kept them from enjoying the land of milk and honey. Unbelief kept them, if you will, from experiencing everything that God had promised them because of their unbelief. Because their unbelief was this. Their unbelief was a rejection to the promise of God. Their unbelief was a rejection to the promise of God. He says, I'm going to send my spirit, amen, so it can convict of sin because the people do not believe me. What is he saying? He said, they're not going to enter and they're not going to receive my promise because they have disbelief concerning my promise. And you know what sin does? Sin supports unbelief. Oh, yeah. Sin supports unbelief because sin... You take any sin in Scripture, any sin that was committed, you trace it down the line, come all the way back to a place of origin. You know what the place of origin many times is? Trace it all the way back. Sin is always, usually, self-oriented. It's selfish. David sins with Bathsheba because he's selfish. He murders Uriah because of self. Eve takes of the fruit. Self. Everybody all right? That's the reason why you have someone that goes and starts living a life of sin. Everybody else comes very low on the totem pole because they're only concerned about what concerns them. I'm telling you the truth. I've lived through it. I don't really care about you. Not like they used to. Because it's more about them. Sin supports unbelief. Why? Because whenever you're self-oriented, you'll have a less tendency to believe in God because you believe more in yourself. He says, but I'm sending the the spirit of truth. (laughs) I'm sending the spirit of truth to come and to convict us of sin and unbelief. So that it convicts us that we are in need of a Savior. Paul McGee isn't a happy meal and a milkshake and a side of fries. I don't know. And here's what happens. Whenever we get an understanding of our sins where we really are, this is what happens. 
that shines a light on our quote-unquote perceived righteousness. When you know you're a sinner, that changes your understanding and viewpoint about your righteousness. If I don't want to claim I'm a sinner, then I'm the good, right-living person. Everything's fine and dandy. You know, I hung the moon twice. You hear what I'm saying? But when you understand you are who you are, that you're a sinner, then that reflects on your righteousness. And you know what the Bible says? Humanity, we have none. You say, well, the world has righteousness. People have righteousness. Yeah, it's a false righteousness. It's a righteousness, as my wife said, Bishop said for years, Isaiah 64, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And I'm not trying to get real whatever, but one rendition of that is the cloth that the lepers would use to wipe their sores. Another rendition of that is that it's a woman's ministration cloth. That's our righteousness. Psalms 14 and verse 1 through 3. You can also find this in Psalms 53, verses 1 through 3. Isn't that neat? Wow. The fool have said in his heart, there is no God. Unbelief. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There's none righteous. Unbelief, none righteous. So the world was going to be convinced of righteousness because there was going to be the departing away and the coming of the Spirit. He was going to go away. How was, how was Christ going to go away? Is it just like, you know, he went to the ticket counter and said, yeah, I want, you know, one-way flight from here to yonder? <laughs> Not a round trip, just, you know, or whatever. No. He went away through his, his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, ultimately capping in his ascension. That's how he went away. And we were convinced of righteousness. It's in your Bible right there, verse number nine, of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. I'm going to convince you of the righteousness you do or do not have because I am going away. And the way in which he did that was his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. He, look at this, this is how he's convincing us of our righteousness through the way that he went away. Please follow me. This is how he's convincing us by the way that he went away. He who knew no sin, that's Christ, right? The Bible says was made to be sin for us on our account because of us. He became the substitute. It should have been us, but it was him. He became what we were, sinners. He took that sin upon him. He bore it upon him. And what happened to him? Hang that fella on a cross. Bury that guy in a tomb. Why? Because humanity has no righteousness. 
He says, I'm going to convince you of your righteousness by seeing you how I was treated when I assumed the nature that you are. They said, that deserves to die. He says, you deserve the same. He's trying to convince us of our lack of righteousness. And so then the Bible says, when the Spirit comes, that false judgment. False judgment, of course, it stems, you look at it in verse number 10, it stems from the prince of the world. Prince of the world, the prince of the world, the slufa, the devil, Satan, all those other things that we would use. Why? Well, number one, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He's been a liar from the beginning, all right? And so there's false judgment in the world because if you believe the dialogue of the prince of the world, you're duped. This is what McLaren says. He says, when he came in the form of a servant, speaking of Jesus Christ, when he came in the form of a servant and died upon the cross, he judged the prince of this world. But when he comes in the form of a king on the great white throne, he will judge the world which he has delivered from its prince. Amen. So what we experience today when the Holy Ghost comes, you know what the Holy Ghost does from day to day? It judges me. You talk about everybody else, don't judge me. Your spirit, your Holy Ghost judges you every day. It does. It says yes, it says no, it says mm, probably not. About ready to say something, no, probably not. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, that would be encouraging, don't do this. It's judging you every day. You never looked at it and said, that gave me. Which is one of the things my kids know I hate and they aggravate me with it sometimes. It's a I, want, I need the Spirit, and I want it to judge me. Because if he'll judge me now, maybe I'll get through judgment later. But you don't have the Spirit of Christ. You have nothing doing any judging for you now. You want to just stack up all your accounts and affairs and just wait till the end? Well, I'd rather be able to have a little course correction here. All right, let's go on. I'm dragging my feet here. It's going. John 16, verse 12. I have yet many things, Jesus says, to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. My Lord, it's been pretty heavy, you know. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak and he shall shew you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall shew it unto you. Very wordy stuff here. All things that the Father hath are mine, Jesus says. Therefore saith I that he shall take care of mine and shall shew it unto you. Now, verse 12 says you're not able to bear them. The Amplified says that you're not able to grasp them now. Because the other things that Jesus would share with his disciples were going to be revealed to them later by the Spirit of truth, by the Holy Ghost. John 4, 14 has already told us about how he will teach us all things. All right? He says, you, you can't bear what I would say right now. Uh, not all the details are going to be divulged right now in this moment because you couldn't bear it. You couldn't carry the weight of them. But the Holy Ghost, it will teach you all truth. It will guide you into all truth. And, and we know that the disciples couldn't handle everything Jesus said to them. Because there were some things he has already said to them many times. He talked to them about what was going to happen concerning him. About his death. Around. He spoke to them about those things. And John, more than any of them, speaks in the scripture. 
because he's writing John kind of after everything is, everything is unfolded and happened, he would say, and they did not understand until the Lord was resurrected. Or they did not know what he was speaking about because he was divulging stuff they didn't quite get at this moment. They couldn't carry it. They couldn't bear it. There were aspects of truth, amen, about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection they couldn't bear or understand prior to him dying, being buried, and resurrected. And so God's relationship to mankind as the comforter, as the spirit of truth, as the Holy Ghost has made him more accessible, as we've already said, more accessible and more known to man. Because again, now, it's not just Christ. I'm not just speaking to a mortal man on the earth, but his spirit is on board. Huh? It's teaching, it's directing. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, and you can look at this for your homework if you want to do something like that. Hebrews 1 and verse number 1, the Bible talks about way long time ago in the Old Testament that God spoken to his people through his prophets. And then in Hebrew 2, he says, but during the days basically of his son, Jesus Christ, he spoke to us by him. What's happening? We're having the same God but different relationships through the compendium of time. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, Father of creation relationship, New Testament, Son of redemption relationship, past Calvary spirit of renewal and regeneration relationship. He said, old time, God spoke to you by the prophets. New Testament time, Christ spoke to you as the man Christ Jesus. After Calvary, the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is going to teach you. The Holy Ghost is going to guide you. Amen. The Holy Ghost is not just going to be with, but it's going to be in the lives of those that receive it. And it's going to speak to you, and it's going to teach you. Amen. You're not going to have to be on the mountain anywhere you're at. It's going to be able to teach you. You're not going to have to be under the shade of a tree or by a body of water. Amen. Like the earthly body of Jesus was in his teaching. No. Wherever you're at, it's going to, it's going to teach you all the time anywhere at all times. Amen. And he says that spirit is going to lead you into all truth. Now, what, what did John say? John said already in a few chapters back, it's a famous verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the, you all know your Bible, and the, hello. The Holy Ghost is going to lead you into all truth. You know what that means? If Jesus is truth, the Holy Ghost is going to guide them to all that Jesus was, is, and will be. Amen. Now, again, this is the wordiness of Scripture, and I'm not going to, you know, play around in here too much unless someone falls off the cliff. But Jesus declares, and I'm closing. I see what you're doing. <laughs> Jesus, I'm just joking. <laughs> I was talking to the screen back there. Everybody's looking back at those guys like, what are they doing? Are they telling him? You know? <laughs> yeah. Lot's wife looked back. You better watch it. <sighs> Remember Lot's wife. Jesus declares... Now follow me real quickly here. Now I'm shutting up. Jesus declares, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That's verse 15. Jesus says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. Verse 15. Yet, the Holy Ghost, this is verse number 14, the Holy Ghost receives what is Jesus's and shares it with the disciples. Now look, if Jesus says, all that belongs, all that belongs to the Father is mine, and then he says, the Holy Spirit receives what is mine, then if you do the connecting of the dots, if Jesus has everything that is the Father's and then everything that is the Father's, then the Holy Ghost 
So not to get confused between Holy Ghost, Father, and Son, is to understand this. We're not losing anything by Jesus going away in the Spirit. We're not losing anything from the beginning of creation to the coming of the Spirit. It's all His. It's all been His. And it's been shared with us from creation to revelation. Same God. Just a change of relationship in this regard. With them shall be in them. According to John 14, stand with me. John 14 and verse 26. Again, the scripture says that the Holy Ghost will teach us all things. And it says that it will remind us of what had been said by Jesus. And then in, in verse 13 of chapter 16, it tells us that it will show us things to come. That's interesting for me. It says, it teaches us all things here and now. It tells us what Christ had said, but it tells us things. It's got, it's got past, present, and future all taken care of. We're not missing out on anything. We're not missing out on anything. Amen. They thought they were. But their light bulb moment will come as the 120 sits in the upper room desiring the promise of the Father. I wish I could have been there. Not because they had a better... I'm just saying, for the, I would like to hear after the, the tongue sees the conversations that was taking place. And one looking at the other and saying, this is what he was talking about. I got it. You know what I'm saying? Like if anybody kept a journal, they'd have to go back. Pre-Calvary. That's what he... This here, this is that. This is what he said. I would just love. Same God. Just different relationship. Nothing's been lost. Can we bow our heads tonight? Father, I come to you this evening. God, I thank you, Lord, for your... Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's F-A-C-M-C. Thank you, and have a blessed day.